welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Only two decisions this week, but I'm not mad at it, as my computer totally blew out and I'm working under less than ideal circumstances. I'm actually presenting on a panel next month where the topic is BIA motions to reopen. And one of those topics is equitable tolling. Tell me, BIA, would the fact that I am currently being forced to use one monitor rather than two constitute circumstances warranting tolling of a filing deadline? If, of course, I acted diligently. Before you answer, ask your staff attorneys how much they love their second monitors. No wins for non-citizens either here. The most depressing type of week. But the podcast marches on. Into 2024, we march. Burned out with admin work? Most immigration lawyers are. That's why over 90 law firm owners have chosen Staffy to help them with the legal, administrative, marketing, and client-facing work. Staffy's goal is to help immigration lawyers live a more balanced life while seeing their law firms grow and scale. And they do that by providing a service that includes top-notch bilingual virtual staff with the HR support that will alleviate the law firm owner from onboarding, continuous management, and training of their virtual teams. Concentrate on this strategic work and let the team at Staffy help you with the rest. I have a Staffy and I couldn't be happier. Schedule a free consultation with Staffy at www.getstaffy.com. That's G-E-T-S-T-A-F-I.com. And claim $500 off by using the code STAFFY2024. That's S-T-A-F-I-2024. Kicking it off with Sing B. Garland published by the Seventh Circuit on January 2nd, 2024. Because we have to start off with something. This case is about credibility. 
Mr. Singh is from India, and he is a Sikh. He testified that in 2017, he became affiliated with the minority political party in that country known as the Man Party. He wasn't a member, but he volunteered with them 10 to 12 times. He was attacked in May 2017 as he hung up posters for a Man Party blood drive. A car bearing the logo of the now-dominant BJP party approached him, wherein four men exited, interrogated him, and then slapped and kicked him until bystanders intervened. He testified that his teeth were broken and they got stitches on his lip and head. Quote, However, a report from the medical clinic that he visited later that day, as well as both the initial and amended written statements he submitted with his asylum application, refer only to swelling and bruises. End quote. That'll become a problem later, as you can probably anticipate. Mr. Singh testified the police turned him and his uncle away when they tried to report the event, threatening to imprison him if he tried to complain about BJP again. Mr. Singh was attacked again in September 2017. Four men again exited a car bearing a BJP logo, as Mr. Singh was helping set up a wedding organized by the Man Party. Quote, they beat him with hockey sticks, stopping only when nearby farmers intervened. End quote. They were demanding that he join BJP. He refused and stayed overnight at a local hospital. After traveling then to an uncle's home in a different part of India, he went to Delhi and then left India altogether. Quote, Since his departure, police and members of the BJP have visited his mother's home on multiple occasions, asking about his whereabouts and threatening to hurt him. End quote. That's what Mr. Singh testified to in immigration court, at least. Mr. Singh testified that if he returned to India, he can't relocate because, quote, BJP can track him using India's online ID system and can identify him based on his scars, end quote. And in any event, BJP is the government of India, essentially, right? An immigration judge did not believe any of this, though, relying on multiple reasons for an adverse credibility finding that we'll get to in a sec. Alternatively, the IJA did not believe that Mr. Singh had suffered harm bad enough to be past persecution, or that low-level man-party affiliates like him really had anything to fear from the BJP. The BIA affirmed on credibility, and also on the merits. The Seventh Circuit affirmed. Credibility is very important in immigration court review, explained the seventh, and here at a minimum, quote, the inconsistent accounts about the seriousness of the first attack justify the agency's adverse credibility finding, end quote. The fact that the doctor's letter and report from that first incident don't mention hockey sticks or broken teeth at all, where Mr. Singh testified that both were present, was too glaring for all tribunals involved. Not all inconsistencies or omissions necessarily support an adverse credibility finding, but here, quote, this missing information is precisely the sort one would expect to see in a written statement and in a physician's report. Its absence raises the inference that Mr. Singh exaggerated the seriousness of his injuries at the hearing, end quote. Nor did the Form I-589 asylum application initially mention these injuries at all, it seems. And while the Seventh Circuit has, quote, cautioned against over-reliance on omissions in I-589 asylum applications, end quote, this was significant. Plus, these omissions were omitted in the medical report, as we just mentioned, and the IJ then heard and rejected Mr. Singh's live testimony and explanation about all of this. 
In any event, the Seventh Circuit also didn't see harm that rose to the level of past persecution in India. Quote, we have described the line between harassment and persecution as the line between the nasty and the barbaric, between misery and cruelty, end quote. Dare I say Shakespearean, and an interesting standard. Cuts, stitches, and broken teeth, at least here, didn't meet that standard to the Seventh Circuit. The Seventh deemed Convention Against Torture Protection and other arguments waived. The court also rejected Mr. Singh's various due process violation arguments. He first alleged ineffective assistance of counsel, throwing his former counsel, at least I hope former counsel, completely under the bus and perhaps undermining his adverse credibility arguments, by the way, by claiming that, quote, his counsel before the IJ fabricated parts of his account in his asylum form and written statement and encouraged him to testify falsely at his hearing, end quote. Maybe. Who knows? He also claimed that the IJ violated his due process rights when the IJ assessed credibility. But we won't know the merits of any of these claims because the Seventh Circuit said that they were unexhausted, as they weren't made before the BIA. Also, matter of Lazada wasn't complied with for the ineffective assistance of counsel stuff, it seems. And at least to me, that latter argument, the one about credibility, kind of merges into a challenge to the credibility finding itself, right? Which the Seventh Circuit just affirmed. All of this meant that Mr. Singh did not succeed. And that is Singh v. Garland. So let's conclude then with Mejia Alvarenga v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on January 3rd, 2024. This case is about government protection and due process. Miss Mejia Alvarenga is from El Salvador and was caught trying to cross the Rio Grande River into the United States. She applied for asylum and related relief and protection in immigration court. In her asylum application, she claimed to fear a man named Rigoberto, who she relayed raped her and then threatened to kill her if she reported it. But she did report it, and Rigoberto was arrested. That led to a series of criminal hearings that Miss Mejia Alvarenga unfortunately had to appear at. But after appearing at two of them, Rigoberto's attorney approached Miss Mejia Alvarenga and offered to pay her to drop the case. Ms. Mejia Alvarenga has guts and told the judge who removed the attorney. But then, the next attorney did the same thing, and that attorney was removed after Ms. Mejia Alvarenga reported that. But then, Rigoberto's mother and sister did the same thing. Can't remove them, I suppose. They told Ms. Mejia Alvarenga that Rigoberto would be eventually freed anyway, so she might as well make some money, something that very much scared Ms. Mejia Alvarenga. Men also visited Miss Mejia Alvarenga while Rigoberto was in jail to intimidate her. Seems like they may have been MS-13 affiliates and that they were threatening her in so many words. Miss Mejia Alvarenga reported all of this to police, including a note that was left for her. But police told her, quote, they could not do anything because the note was anonymous and did not contain blood or anything like that, end quote. Looks like Rigoberto was eventually released and, even seven years later, told Miss Mejia Alvarenga in person, quote, you're going to pay for what you did to me, end quote. That's when she fled to the United States. An immigration judge and then the BIA denied her claim. 
Miss Mejia Alvarengo's fears weren't for the right reasons, explained the agency, nor did the agency believe that the Salvadoran government was unable or unwilling to protect her. Important to this petition for review to the Fifth Circuit, the BIA seems to mainly have affirmed on unable or unwilling to protect. The BIA also declined to refer this case to a three-BIA member panel, and had only one BIA member decide the matter. And the BIA did not deem it important that DHS hadn't filed an opposition brief on appeal, as so often occurs. The Fifth Circuit affirmed the BIA. That pesky unable or unwilling to protect standard isn't actually in the asylum statute. As I understand it, the requirement comes from the fact that historically, asylum was focused on protecting individuals from their governments. So, case law eventually told us, if the government is not the persecutor, like here, then the non-citizen must show that the government is unable or unwilling to protect the non-citizen from that private actor persecution. What is unable or unwilling? Well, in matter of AB1 and AB2, Jeff Sessions and then Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen believed that it equated to, quote, complete helplessness, end quote. Although if I recall, both decisions kind of hedged and muddied the waters a bit, even on that. But it doesn't matter, right? Because Attorney General Garland vacated the matter of A-by. Wrong. Quote, the complete helplessness standard was the law of this circuit prior to AB1, and it continues to serve as the law of this circuit even after the vacature in AB3. End quote. Gotta love the fifth. Okay, argued Ms. Mejia Alvarenga, but the BIA didn't actually focus on the Salvadoran government's ability or willingness at all in its analysis, and instead pretty much focused all about Rigoberto and his reasons for harming Ms. Mejia Alvarenga. An insufficient, unable or unwilling or complete helplessness analysis, argued Ms. Mejia Alvarenga to the Fifth Circuit. Rejected. The BIA did enough, explained the Fifth, quote, the evidence presented to the BIA showed that the Salvadoran government arrested and detained Rigoberto for the alleged rape, removed his first two attorneys after Ms. Mejia Alvarenga reported them to the court for offering her money to drop the case, and pursued Rigoberto's case even after Ms. Mejia Alvarenga stopped cooperating with the prosecution. These actions support the BIA's determination that the Salvadoran government would not be unwilling or unable to control Ms. Mejia Alvarenga's persecutors, end quote. Unsure what the BIA actually held, but essentially it seems like the Fifth Circuit is saying that there was enough evidence there for the BIA to hold that the Salvadoran government was able or willing, even if the BIA didn't go through all of that evidence. I don't know. It's a bit unclear. As to the other threats and interactions that Ms. Mejia Alvarenga experienced, the Fifth Circuit believed them not overly relevant, as she either didn't report them to police, or they were of the type that a police force could be excused for failing to solve. The court also rejected Ms. Mejia Alvarenga's due process and regulatory violative arguments. The BIA did not act in a biased fashion, as Ms. Mejia Alvarenga argued, when it didn't require DHS to file a brief and then affirm the removal order anyway. Indeed, under the regulations explained the Fifth Circuit, no party has to file any brief at all. Nor is the BIA required, as Ms. Mejia Alvarenga argued, to have a three-member panel review an appeal, rather than simply one BIA member review the appeal. Under the statute and regulations, quote, referral to a three-member BIA panel is discretionary, end quote. 
Therefore, as a growing list of cases, unfortunately, is starting to make clear, quote, the failure to receive relief that is purely discretionary in nature does not amount to a deprivation of a liberty interest, end quote. So it can't be a due process violation when you don't get it, no matter what happens, appears to be the logic. We've discussed similar issues in the ineffective assistance of counsel motion to reopen context, at least in the 11th Circuit. That's Ponce Flores v. Garland, episode 154. For purposes of this case, though, putting aside that tangent I just went on, the BIA can refer or not refer, as it sees fit. Also Shakespearean 5th Circuit. In any event, reason this Fifth Circuit panel, agencies have great leeway in establishing procedures to fulfill their congressionally mandated obligations. And in any any event, it seems that the Fifth Circuit believes that it lacks jurisdiction over this argument anyway. One final interesting argument cast aside, quote, In addition, we also reject Ms. Mejia Alvarenga's argument on the merits. She argues that New Orleans' 10% asylum grant rate, when compared with New York and Honolulu's grant rates of 43% and 60% respectively, establishes bias, end quote. But the Fifth Circuit disagreed. It does not establish bias. The Fifth Circuit does not care about your track data, Syracuse University. Also, get me to Honolulu. In rejecting this argument, by the way, the Fifth Circuit cited to its 2021 decision in Singh v. Garland on IJ impartiality. A case that was oh so close to coming out the other way, if you recall. Salt in the wound. No relation to this week's Singh v. Garland, it would appear. All of this meant that Miss Mejia Alvarenga lost her case. But I thought this was interesting before we go. When it comes to petitions for review, it's always a bit confusing, to me at least, on what exactly the circuit is supposed to be reviewing. Should the circuit be reviewing the IJ's decision? The BIA's decision? Both? None? It can get kinda weird. Well, here's this malleable standard from the Fifth Circuit, quote, We consider the immigration judge's decision to the extent it influenced the BIA, end quote. You heard it here first, IJs. Consider yourselves influencers. And as to the non-citizen bar, well, turn it into something that helps your case. That's an order. And that is Mejia Alvarenga v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all, and follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review, or send us a tweet, at ImReview, that's I-M-M, Review. 
I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.